welcome to the Perfect Gentleman podcast. This is episode 44. I am Zach Faulkner-Barfield, the co-founder of The Perfect Gentleman, and alongside me is the dashing, debonair, delightfully charming Mr. James Marwood, how are you, sir? I'm very well. Enjoying getting back into the swing of things after the Christmas break. It's always strange, isn't it? January does this weird thing. So about halfway through January, we suddenly start to get into our stride, as it were, after a, the haze of festive frolics. We're back in there now. We're back doing the regular podcast. We're back here for you, our listeners, and we're back talking about some interesting things. And as 2017 is a little bit of change, we're going to talk about a few different things in the Perfect Gentleman podcast as we move forward. We might have a little bit more debates, different stuff along the way. Last week we talked about resolutions. How is your reading coming along? I'm making progress. It's coming along well. I've been reading some fiction and some non-fiction. I'm thoroughly enjoying the book you very kindly sent me for Christmas, Becoming a Supple Leopard which is an exercise and recovery book for injuries. And that's very timely because my hips are quite sore. I've been overdoing it a little on the squats. Excellent. I'm reading a book about Restoration London in preparation for my role in the uh, play. I generally run two books concurrently and I'm reading The Organised Mind. So I'm, I'm working my way through those two at the moment. I don't have the book. It's on my to-buy list. Well, I shall let you know what it's like once I've finished it. Do. So what are we to talk about today, James? I thought it might be good if we talked a little bit about martial arts and historical martial arts. Oh, yes. Getting into it in the new year. New year, new hobbies. And this is a suggestion. And then you suggested we might want to talk a little bit about what you call the lost men. I have a, a sort of theory that we can debate and we can open up to the wider listening Perfect Gentleman podcast audience about... The lost men and the lost male generation. And are we experiencing this lost male generation at the moment? But um, historical martial arts. Now, how we met was through your expertise in this particular area. I'm always fascinated by it. And you've recommended some amazing things for me to look at. Tell me a little bit about, James, if you would, what is historical martial arts? Primarily what I tend to look at is what's called... HEMA or HEMA, that's H-E-M-A, which stands for Historical European Martial Arts. And these are the martial arts of loosely Europe. I mean, Europe is hard to define as a concept always anyway. The historical fighting systems and martial systems that grew up in Europe from as far back as we have records. And our records go back to sensibly around the 11th century. And these include armed and unarmed martial arts. The thing most people have seen and that gets the most interest online is German and Italian style longsword. And you may have seen the videos of guys with blunt longswords, very fast, wearing normally black fencing equipment with extra padding, flying at each other at great high speed in competitions. And that's one of the sort of the highest profile and most popular expressions of humour are this competitive longsword bouting. I've not done that for a long time. It's moved on several levels since I was involved. And some of the guys who do that now and the quality of the competitors and the competitions and the refereeing is phenomenal. And it's a really fun sport to watch. Very fast-paced, very aggressive. If you're interested in that, have a look online for something called Swordfish which is a a Swedish event that's held annually that also includes a big competition and has very good commentary. So you'll have guys like Matt Gallus, who's probably one of the leading scholars and thinkers on historical European martial art, commenting on the bouts. And that's always fun to watch. Okay, definitely have a look at that. But in general, historical European martial arts covers absolutely everything. My personal interest is more the unarmed martial arts of the 19th century, boxing, bartitsu that we've talked about in the past, 
wrestling when I can, things like that. I, I do a little bit of jiu-jitsu as a supplement to that and a little bit of MMA as a, as a modern thing. It also covers things such as medieval-style wrestling, ringing is it one of the German systems, which is a grappling and throwing system. Looks a little bit similar to jiu-jitsu. Or you have things like real sporty wrestling styles, such as Scottish backhold, schwingen, a Swiss system, French savate kickboxing, both in the historical and the modern sense. Sticks, knives, spears, pole arms, all sorts of stuff. There's a little bit of overlap with reenactment. If you've seen that, you know, the guys who attempt to recreate historical events in living history. Generally speaking, what makes HEMA different is that we approach it as a martial art, as a physical discipline, whether that's towards understanding the art or sport or self-defence or just for its own sake. Most people have some mix of those four reasons for doing it, but we're interested in the historical and the martial. Oh, wow, fascinating. I mean, I remember going back through time uh, into my past in, in various different areas. So I've always been tangentially interested and in, sort of involved in it in one way, shape or form. So I remember when I was growing up as a young teenager, before that even, my mum used to work at a restaurant called the Beef Eater, which is no longer in existence in its current form. It's called the Medieval Banqueting House. It's in St. Catherine's Dock in London. When my mother used to manage it, they used to have stuntmen who were trained in sword fighting and martial arts come in and do fights in armour in the event. Um, so I've always been interested in, in that kind of thing. And then a few years ago, a friend of mine was writing a screenplay about 1066 and the Battle of Hastings. So he went off and found a guy to teach Stave. So a chap called Graham Butcher. I know Graham. I've trained with Graham a few times. He's a lovely chap. He's a lovely chap. And he taught my friend Max for quite a while. And I met Graham a number of times and just was fascinated by how he taught and the stave martial arts and, and that period, because that was that period. It was that, how you fought in that period. So it's fascinating. I wish to do more. We'll talk about one of our resolutions. One of my resolutions uh, would be at some point this year in my quarters is, is to take up some kind of HEMA martial art, but I can find it. Excellent. There are far, far more clubs now than there ever, ever have been. There are two sort of large global groupings but HEMA is very much an open source martial art no one controls it nobody will say you know you can do it you can't I mean I was sort of a second generation student where I went to train with Scholar Gladiatoria in London Matt Easton's group and he's very active on YouTube especially worth looking at and Matt had the original or copies of the original manuals from the 14th century and spent a lot of time trying to work out how to apply them I was a student of his before I moved into looking at Bartitsu and things now there are so many groups so there's nothing to stop you just picking up the manuals and having a play they're available for free to download online there are published books you can purchase with instructions and all sorts but learning from a book is really really hard so if you can find a club it's always worth going to and there are two main main organizations which cover the majority of the groups around the world in europe it's called hemac h-e-m-a-c which stands for the historical european martial arts collective globally but primarily in the u.s is the hema alliance they have a club finder on their website which is really useful there are clubs right across the world i know groups from london hong kong all over the u.s right through the midwest mexico brazil canada japan even there's also a really really interesting and exciting parallel movement which is taking inspiration from hema looking at traditional historical african and traditional historical persian martial arts they look really fascinating and africa especially has this 
huge breadth of cultures and history that has been ignored or, or not given the attention it deserves. And that's really exciting to see that coming up. That's often referred to as Hammer, historical African martial arts. There's so many choices now for where you can go and where you can study. No matter where you are in the world, you should be able to find a group. And if there isn't a group, there's probably three or four people who've been trying to start a group for a while and just need someone to come and train with. If you can't find what you're looking for through the Hammer Alliance or HEMAC websites, have a look on Facebook there are loads of groups there. For you, Zach, being in London or close to London is probably the densest collection of clubs in, in the world. So you've got groups like Scholar of Gladiatoria, the London Longsword Academy. There's a really active group at Waterloo, which is more of a sort of competitive sparring group. So many. And almost all of them have profiles on Facebook. And you can always reach out to me and I'll point you in the right direction. There's a whole plethora, as you say. What would you say is the foundation stuff? If someone is like, oh, I have no idea, so much choice, what would you say would be like, well, start here and then do some research, but play here first? I think the best thing to do, if you can, find an established group and they will have a, a syllabus that will start you off. And most of those will start you off either with longsword or with unarmed. And that tends to be where most people get involved. If the longsword, which is a, a two-handed, very fast sword, doesn't float your boat, then rapier is also something that's very popular. So rapier can be a little physically demanding because you're holding the, ha the sword in one hand outstretched and it's quite heavy, you know, it's sort of three to four pounds. So it might take a while to build into that. But it's so much fun and the, the rapier clubs that I know are second to none. They're really fantastic groups. And ideally with a big established group. And if you can't do that, come along to an event. So most groups will hold an annual event. In the UK, there's about eight or nine big events a year in the US there's a similar number but much more spread out and you have a lot more concurrent events there there are European events if you can get to one of those you'll be able to try lots of different things you'll be able to go and do a bit of longsword in the morning and a bit of backsword in the afternoon and maybe some rapier and some pugilism and some wrestling and you'll have a lot of fun over beers and dinner and things talking about all the different options and one wonderful thing about the HEMA community is unlike fight club first rule of HEMA club is you must talk about HEMA all the time <laughs> constantly <laughs> to anyone who will possibly listen um, they're such an open welcoming bunch it's a fantastic way to make friends I love the community it's great fantastic i think everyone should try a bit of hema especially if you want to become a an old school gentleman knight as it were what i love about hema is it allows you to get some physical exercise get some social networking and and, and friendly uh, relationships going on to get some competition if you want it and to look at the history and the research it can really spark your interest in weird and wonderful other areas if you want information do drop us a line at inquiries at theperfectgentleman.tv or drop us a note on social media facebook twitter instagram you can contact james direct at that marwood chap a marwood chap on twitter james.marwood on facebook and you can find me through that marwoodchap.com which is my business website maybe we'll uh, do a little bit of my journey on hema uh, later this year that would be awesome yeah well why not give it a go so the next thing we want to talk about is kind of more of a debate it's something that i've been mulling over in my head for a little while something that we can talk about and my theory about this and how we go forward from it i kind of feel that we're in uh, certainly at the current moment in time what i call the lost generation 
for men. Yes. It's been talked about quite often, but I find that no one's kind of nailed it down yet. I don't think I have nailed it down either, but I do think that we have this generation, and I don't mean the age generation, I mean the period of time that we're in, where men have kind of lost their way. And somewhat is to do with the changing relationships between men and women, which is fabulous. I'm I'm very pro-equality. I have no doubts about that. Absolutely. I don't think there's a reasonable argument that can be made otherwise. No. And being raised by my mum and my grandmother, I have very strong feminist tendencies. But I think what's happened, though, as part of that, and there's other things as well which we can discuss, men have kind of lost their way. And not just their way in society, but also their place in the workplace, their place in their roles in society. But also there's other things which is kind of an adjunct to that is kind of I find that we've lost a sense of style a sense of knowledge a sense of place a sense of frameworks which people used to hang their hats on now I'm not saying they're right or wrong that's not the point of the argument the point of the argument or the point of the discussion is what is the framework that we need to build on and how do we get there there is a lot of from my mind a lot of the the reaction of the sort of white male angst that you see in some political conversations, which we don't need to mention. Those kind of things are an offshoot of this, the fact that we haven't got a a style of dress. And I think there's a number of reasons for that. Beforehand, people were in their place and there was a, a set sort of world that we operated in, and now there isn't. Yes. And I think this looseness has caused this lostness, as it were. What are your thoughts, James? I've been thinking about this quite a lot. Was it two years ago now you and I did a talk on chivalry in one of the Shed Talks for a London alt-finance group? One of the things I'd started looking at then, it's something that had been on my mind through my own challenges and what happened in my own life, was the prevalence of undiagnosed mental illness with men, the suicide rates with men. And at that time, and it's grown ever increasingly, the number of what I think of as destructive subcultures that young men especially can be drawn to so i'm thinking there about things like the whole sort of red pill movement things like the meninists men's right activists sick puppies all those sorts of guys the vast majority of men i've met and young men i've met who are involved with those or of those are perfectly decent reasonable intelligent men who have been led slightly astray by having a very limited view of the world and spending a lot of time in internet echo chambers where they're preyed upon, and I use that term deliberately, by charlatans who want to make them feel better, effectively sort of culty types. Irrelevant of politics and irrelevant of personal beliefs or things like that, that route leads to, in my experience, and that's my fear, to isolation and misery and not a happy, well-rounded life, which I think we all want and we all can get. You know, our lives, if you think about, say, for example, both my grandfathers had a very different lives, professionally and family-wise. They got married young. They had families young. They had careers which lasted them most of their professional life. Once they were in a career, that was it until they chose to go and do something else. So, for example, one of my granddads worked for the same engineering company almost all his life and then only towards the end made a change into lecturing and teaching. They lived in the same geographical area. They lived through an enormous amount of upheaval and 
change, world wars, that sort of thing. But the social aspect of what they lived through stayed relatively static. My parents' generation, if you like, so the boomers, if we're talking in sort of generational terms, they saw massive amounts of change in terms of the real breakthrough of feminism, changing social roots, civil rights, all of that kind of thing, and lived through a period of immense sustained prosperity. So even though they went through a lot of social change, financially and physically, they were very secure. It was the Cold War, it was threatening. That was an era where you could buy a house and support a family on a decent salary. And if there were two of you working, as more and more couples were doing, you could have quite a comfortable life. And then for those of us who were, I guess, technically Gen X, and then we're into Gen Y and the millennials, I don't really like that millennial phrase because it brings so much baggage with it, but... We're going through very, very accelerated social change. Things like the internet, working patterns, new social rules which are yet to settle down, the the fallout of the political correctness ideal. And I'm not using that as a pejorative. I think there's a strong argument to be made that if you... Any argument with political correctness, you can just replace the phrase political correctness with politeness and you'll get to a much more useful conversation. But you also have economic uncertainty and a lack of stability for a lot of people that I think is quite new in the way it feels. It's not the instability that our grandparents, not the greatest generation, felt through war and the destruction almost of nations because you were anchored by social stability. For the boomers, there was social change but economic stability. And what we have is social and economic instability combined with the very fast-moving and relentless pace of the media, of internet, of fashion. And one of the things which has come to light, and this is something that women have had to put up with for hundreds of years, and it's becoming more and more, I think, of a pressure for men, is the importance of appearance, of giving the appearance of success and of beauty, and that being far more linked to your worth. And this is a problem that... As I say, women have faced for generations. I mean, I remember someone making a joke about this is Barbie. She's been giving unacceptable and unrealistic expectations of beauty to little girls since the 1960s. This is He-Man. Somewhat of a joke, a little bit pointed, but actually I know of more and more men and I've read about young men especially who are having issues with things like bulimia or anorexia, who are self-harming or really struggling to fulfil an impossible ideal of photoshopped, male beauty which is unrealistic and unobtainable and I think all of these things come together and you have then these groups such as men's rights activists red pillars the guys behind Gamergate all that sort of stuff who say to you this is so-and-so's fault this is women's fault this is feminism's fault this is ethnic minorities fault this is liberals fault this is conservatives fault whatever that's a compelling argument that's seductive and it's really easy then to put yourself in a box and lock yourself in a room or hide away it becomes really easy then to see the opposition that you've been given as something less than human or something less than you and then to be really angry and hateful towards it which then makes you more miserable and it's a horrible horrible vicious cycle and i see it so much and of course because of social media because of the media generation that we're in we have this echo loop you only see what you want to see so you'd get reinforced with this all the time you don't go outside your world so you get this reinforcement then you've got those groups but you also got the rise in male suicide the rise in male self-harm the rise in male depression which is those men who aren't falling down 
the paths of those groups that you mentioned, but not understanding how to deal with it. Because men have been told for centuries that they have to be strong and stand up and not talk about their problems and not talk about their ideals. The reverse of the women's issues as well is that kind of thing where, well, I can't talk about my depression or my difficulty or my challenges. I must be stoic and not say a word, deal with it internally and not speak to anyone. So I think we have this whole conflagration of forces that destabilize the male generation i'm not saying that we're in the right or in the wrong and i feel like i want to be balanced about this because i feel that we're not saying you know women haven't dealt with this and suffered this for centuries and all that sort of stuff we're not saying that i just thinking that saying that because both sides are destabilized both sides of the gender balance are destabilized we're in this really strange place yes in the same way that some like Marxists will frame all conflict in terms of class, or most feminist rights will frame things in terms of gender and in terms of patriarchy, as unuseful as a phrase as that is, but the more enlightened ones will recognise and talk about that this idea that they call patriarchy is as damaging to men as it is to women, or is at least damaging to both. It's interesting that when you look at who are the most common victims of suicide, of effectively fatal mental illness, it's working class white men in their mid to late 30s and 40s. I suspect that these are groups which have been generally okay during the 70s and 80s in a lot of the Western world, the traditional working classes were struggling as communities changed, as industry changed, and that's continuing. Groups that have probably had it a bit tougher generally, such as women, ethnic minorities, suffer less in that regard because they have an identity and a code that they can cling to. And I think the problem that a lot of men, and I felt this way myself for a long time, I didn't have a code or a an identity or a badge almost to put on myself to say, this is who I am and this is what I care about. For a lot of men, that was around sport and around work and around geography. I am a scouser and I support Liverpool and I work on the docks. There's a lot of guys from my part of the world. You know, I'm, I'm a Newcastle fan or a Sunderland fan and I'm from Durham or I'm from Newcastle and I work in the mine or whatever. That doesn't exist anymore and hasn't for a generation or more. And it's probably taken that long for some of those codes to die away. I have friends, especially from when I were in London, who were West Indian or Kenyan and who had the same challenges in terms of work and education and poverty and social things, but had a very, very strong family and community structure that not all of us have. And I think for them that was really useful. In absence of that, some men look for other things and that's where you end up with these unhelpful to my mind social groupings as you say one of the biggest problems one of the biggest challenges is the speed of everything if you look at social change generally over the course of the years has not changed that quickly there's been sort of perturbation moments where it moves rapidly the late 1700s where it moved rapidly and the revolutions happened around the world and that sort of stuff but generally it doesn't move that rapidly and yet as you say in the last sort of 30 years social change has moved 
immeasurably. That can be seen politically as well. You can see the political social change of the battling the one percenters. There is this whole shift in geopolitics going on. There's a whole shift in mental attitude going on. There's a whole shift in the way people perceive themselves politically, socially, economically, culturally. That's all shifting as well. That's part of the whole thing. As you say, you need a code. People will seek out a code in any way, shape or form. I was listening to a great economist last year about Trumpism and Brexit, and he was saying people are seeking that out because there isn't anything else. The world has changed and is changing. This generation, this period of time, will be called the lost generation. But not lost as the previous lost generation was, but more lost in not knowing what's going on. I think that's probably true. I went to a lecture, it was on the use of iPads in schools, given by a guy called Fraser Spears. He's a Scottish IT consultant. He recounted this story of going to a talk on education and these professional teachers and education consultants saying, oh, you know, this is the first generation being that has grown up on the internet. So that's not true. You know, the kids coming into the workplace now, these so-called millennials, are the second generation. You and I grew up at the beginning of the bulletin board and internet era and spent our lives on computers. The children of us and our peers who are now entering the workspace. These are the guys who are having the same challenges we did, but accelerated much further because of that speed and that pace and the echo chamber and the filter bubble that we find ourselves in, especially if we're not really, really careful to seek out other ideas. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, my big bugbear, as we talk about all the time, is technology does not breed great human interaction. Because people spend so much time on phones and communication, digital communication, the act of physically communicating to someone is lost or is certainly decreasing. I would rather use the phrase it's mediated. I love being able to text and chat with my friends who are spread out. And I've had some really good conversations that way, but it's really easy for them to be bitty little snippets where you only give the edited highlights. And what I value, and I think the point, and I'm Tell me if I'm putting words in your mouth and interrupting too much again. Is that good conversation requires effort and thought. And that's what I value about the conversations you and I have, for example. You force and challenge me to be thoughtful and to be present and to be engaged. And when you're multitasking and having conversations in 140 characters or less, that's hard. And that's the problem. And also that level of judging people on their Instagram profile or their Facebook profile, which is edited highlights. It's like an edited highlight reel of your life. and It's not genuine. You put out what you wish to put out. You don't put out everything. I had just that experience about a month or so ago. I was teaching a martial arts event and a guy looked me up online young chap and he was clearly slightly in awe of me because of he'd seen my facebook and he'd seen things and that brought me up short because that wasn't me and i hadn't deliberately thought well i'm going to sculpt this thing around myself to make myself look cool online but that's what i'd ended up doing and for somebody who didn't know me and didn't know all the silly mistakes i've made and the daft stuff i've done and the you know my tendency to to rant about entirely inappropriate topics or struggles with depression and things like that didn't know any of that he just saw me as this cool guy from his facebook profile if he can do that with me then somebody who's really good at doing that sort of thing and really puts it forward and people who've grown up in that environment it must be like that for them all the time I think I'm quite blessed not to have grown up in a Facebook age. Yes, I'm equally blessed. I I agree with you. I think there's a lot more to discuss about this. It's a starting topic of conversation. I'm sure you and I will come back to this over the course of the time. We'd greatly appreciate your thoughts out there in podcast land. We're just talking. This is a debate. We're not right. We're not wrong. We're just discussing our opinions and our thoughts. 
Absolutely. Every time I talk to people about this, I learn so much. What I'm pretty solid on, in my opinion, is that you know most people, the vast majority of people, are decent good people who are having a tough time of it as we all are but give them a chance to explain and to speak and to learn and learn about them you'll understand where they're coming from and that's what i'd be really interested in anybody who thinks i'm completely wrong tell me why i would love to know why you think that and you may very well change my mind you and i are very similar in that respect is i like people's opinions you know i want people to discuss stuff with me because i want to understand your point of view whether i agree with it or not that's not relevant in one sense yeah, I want to understand so I can appreciate. And as you say, you never know. Change my mind, change my perspective. People have done. Absolutely. Comment on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Drop us a line at inquiries at theperfectgentleman.tv. That's all for today's podcast. We could talk about this for hours, but we're wary of your time out there in podcast land, um, <laughs> not ours. Uh, so uh, thank you very much for listening to us. James, always a pleasure. And you, my friend. Thank you very much. Have a great day, and I'll speak to you soon. Indeed. Take care, buddy. This podcast is brought to you by the Perfect Gentleman Group Limited and was edited by Andy Nichol at the Pistachio Palace.